and welcome back to Philosophize Sales, the show where we apply philosophical theories and questions to help us drive more business. My name is George Hogan, and let's get to it. So as a sales leader, there's one thing that I am asked about and for more than anything. This is the same thing that I'm asking my team about nearly every day. It's the same thing that I had to kick up the chain of command, and more often than not, it's the same thing that has to be delivered to the board, probably not weekly, but definitely monthly, quarterly, annually, a year in advance, two years in advance. Any guesses? Well, I know I didn't give that many hints, but you can probably assume that I'm talking about the holier-than-thou forecast. I get tired of it. My boss gets tired of it. Reps get tired of hearing questions about it almost as t- as much as I get tired updating my CRM with a series of spreadsheets. This one goes to that VP. This one goes to this ELT. This one goes to somebody on my team. This one goes to my peers. Moreover, it seems like we even like to complicate it by asking for more weekly forecasts. And Maybe we need a weekly forecast. What's going to close today? What's going to close by Friday? What's going to close this? What's our week one sprint? What's our week five sprint? What are we doing here? Monthly, quarterly, whatever. It's too much. But in sales, knowing your book of business is one of the most important skills you need to hone. The problem is, are we, orca- are we forecasting accurately? Are we actually calling the deals or are we just giving a static number and sure, maybe some deals will shift and we'll find new ones to replace the pushes, but is what we're forecasting an accurate reflection of reality? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that we're going to get into some inception matrix type discussion and go deep into Descartes and Cartesian philosophy and the idea of duality. Let me say it now. We won't be discussing red pills and blue pills. We won't be talking about the year is actually 2121 and we're harnessing energy from people to feed the machines. No. That said, there is something to be learned from the concepts of extreme rationalism. But rather than diving into the nuance of the famed, I think, therefore, I am statement, I want to pose the philosophical question for you. How do we know what is real? And how can we take philosophy's understanding of reality and improve our forecasting. To answer these questions, I'm going to rely on one story and one famed philosopher and psychologist. The first one, I'm going to rely on the story of Hwan Hyom. He's a famous Korean Buddhist monk. So who was Hwan Hyom? Venerable Hwan Hyom, monk Hwan Hyom, is one of the most prominent Buddhist monks in Korean history. Buddhist monk from the 7th century is well known for teaching the truth and that that truth is found in the mind. Here's a quick story of how he came to spreading his teaching. So the year is 1661. Wan Hyo has set on a journey with his friend to learn about Buddhism in China, which is essentially the regional center of the religion at that time. Remember, Siddhartha started it. It kind of branched out from India um, and uh, in the Himalayan area, went in to different parts of East Asia. To the south, essentially what happened, it turned into Theravada, Buddhism, which is a little bit more focused on inward thought, a little bit more where you have people living on monasteries. And then it also went north, which is Mahayana Buddhism, which is essentially a vehicle Buddhism. That's where you see more Buddhists that are lay people. That's where you see people that are kind of a good balance of spreading the message of Buddhism in the monasteries, but also um, but also people out there living their lives as lay people. So they're on their way to China. 
On the way, on a dark night, a huge rainstorm started coming down, really battering them. So it forced the two traveling monks into a cave to take shelter. While they were sleeping there or trying to sleep, Wanyo woke up in the middle of the night and he, as he became extremely thirsty, wakes up fumbling around in the dark trying to find something to drink. So he's, he's patting around with his hands and on the ground, his hand happened to touch a bowl-like vessel that was filled with water. He thought it was a gourd of some sort containing water, so he picked it up, gulped it down, glunk, 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 and he felt great. The water was so cool and refreshing that he was fully quenched, and his thirst went away, and he slept well for the rest of the night. Right? Good find in the middle of a cave. The following morning, however, Wanyo discovered, as he opened his eyes, wiped off the crust, that there were skulls and bones scattered all around the cave. And in fact, the cave wasn't a cave at all. It was actually an old tomb. He was shocked. But it was even more disturbing to learn that the vessel that he had drunk from the previous night was not a gourd. No, no. It was a human skull. And he further realized that he had actually been drinking some sort of dirty liquid that was contained in the rotten skull. Sure, it was still water, but you're drinking water from a rotten skull. So instead of this fresh water in a bowl, he was drinking some sort of water from a skull. The mere sight of the scene was disgusting for him. He was so repulsed by what he had drunk that he fell to his knees and he began to throw up. Suddenly, something hit him. He stopped vomiting, and he, in, in startled amazement, he had a realization. He wondered why the sweet and clean water he had drunk with relish in the night became so disgusting the next morning. He realized that it was his mind, and it wasn't the water itself that determined the difference between truth and reality. He was amazed how the mind could change perception so easily, and he realized that truth is created by the mind. That was the very moment when he experienced his enlightenment deep down inside him. And what did he do? Well, he decided not to go to China. He decided he had everything he needed. He went back to Korea, and the story is there. That's the lore it reads, right? It's a wild story. But what does it mean for us? What does it mean for sales? What does it mean for forecasting? So first... One of the biggest challenges of sales, but particularly forecasting, is this. It's A, our ability to be honest with ourselves. And B, our willingness to see what is real. And this is a hard task. It really is. So let's imagine, let's imagine we get off a demo <clears throat> that we just had, and it was a home run, right? It's one of these dream demos that you always want. Everyone was there. You got your value props clearly, uh, clearly across. The prospect was asking questions and seemed to be very engaged. Great, right? Like Wanyo and Water, you, the salesperson, you were so thirsty for an amazing demo and a great chance to close the deal. It didn't matter that you didn't get to ask all the questions you prepared for the prospect because the prospect was so engaged and they were loving it. You got your fill, you quenched your thirst, and you think you can rest easy knowing that it will close soon, right? What does that mean? Time to call up the boss. I just had a great demo. Don't worry. This is going to close. I got... I got it done. I got it done, boss. Time to forecast that deal, right? Well, guess what? Now it's been three days, and you haven't heard anything from the prospect. 
Don't worry, boss. I had a great demo. It was great. Now it's been a week, maybe a month. What happened? That delicious water from the gourd might have turned out to be putrid refuse from a skull. Essentially, you wanted that demo to go so well, and nothing was going to convince you that it didn't. So what did you miss? Well, as promised, enter character two, Eric Fromm. A Swedish humanistic philosopher and psychologist, he penned a book called The Art of Listening in the 1970s. This book and his thinking is kind of guide us of how to avoid drinking from the skull. He outlined six basic rules for listening, but I only want to focus on the first two. Number one, the basic rule for practicing the art of listening is the complete concentration of the listener. Number two, nothing of importance must be on your mind. Essentially, you cannot be biased. You have to be optimally free from anxiety as well from greed, right? That's a hard thing because sometimes we get nervous before a pitch, especially if it's in front of our boss or somebody big and important is attending, and then we have to be free from greed. That's also a challenging thing. I'm certainly not saying that salespeople uh, are greedy, but we are driven by commissions. So what he's saying here is that we can't listen to our prospects in hopes of them saying something that we are prepared for. We can't listen for a window to start talking again. We have to give them complete focus so we can actually understand their full disposition. Secondly, we can't be nervous or greedy. That being that we need to be prepared and we can't smell of what some people call commission breath. If we do these things, we can see things in their true nature. We can actually understand what we need to do next to get the deal advanced so we can feel comfortable forecasting it. Now, I want to drill down a lead even more. I want to get even more specific here. In order to actually know where a deal is, you need to create criteria that need to be met before considering forecasting. I know there's a lot of naming convention out there and nomenclature out there. And for the sake of today's conversation, let's just call these deals high, medium, low. There's a high chance, a medium chance, and a low chance of the deal closing. The first thing we want to do after we assign these these buckets is we want to assign weight to each category. I prefer 70, 40, 10, respectively. High 70, medium 40, low 10. And you might think I'm being too pessimistic, and I am. But as somebody who's been in sales leadership for nearly 20 years, it's right on. Now that we have the categories and the weights, we can discuss entrance criteria. So if you stick to these guidelines that I'm about to share, you're going to have a better compass moving forward. So let's take a look at it. So let's say that you want to start with a low. You're not really sure. You had your first demo. Right, So this is what I want to call low or 10%. This is the entrance criteria that I would like to list out. One, you get a demo attended. Two, your key evaluator, your champion, is bought in. Three, a budget has been discussed. Four, timeline has been discussed. Five, prospect is aware of pricing. Six, you've identified the best terms. This could be in terms of timing. This could be in terms of of how they like their contract, quarterly, annual, renew. There's a lot of different things there. And if this is a pull forward deal that you think you can close it in like September, but you want to try to pull it into July, eh, you could get that at 10%. Now, that's 10%. If you can check all those boxes, I am comfortable with you forecasting 10% of that total contract value. What about your medium? Well, same thing. One, budget identified. 
Two, executioner identified. Now, this is different than your champion. This is different from procurement or your CEO. You need to know who is actually signing that piece of paper. Three, vendor of choice. Are you the vendor of choice? You should be because if this is still competitive, you shouldn't be forecasting it. Maybe it's competitive. They say they're leaning towards you. I'll let you do 10%. But if this is a competitive situation, it is absolutely not going to be forecasted at 40%. Three, uh, excuse me, four, all known demos have been completed. You've shown as much as your product as possible. Obviously done with discovery calls at this point. You've shown it to as many people as possible. You're feeling good. Next, legal is pending. Legal knows about it. They've seen the terms. They haven't finished it. They haven't signed off on anything. Yep, uh, that's legal. Next, proposal and pricing review completed. You've already looked at the proposal. You've already talked about the terms. Now you're talking about pricing. They already saw it. They didn't run away. They already talked about some different things. Maybe they've countered a couple things. Doesn't matter. Next, timeline established. This is extremely important. You don't understand your book of business if you don't know the timeline. They could say they like everything. They could do this. They could do that. They could check all the right boxes. But if they're not telling you that they're going to be willing to sign and get this done in the next two months, then it's not a real deal. Get it out of there. And then IT pending. This really just depends. The last one is this is something that I want to do as 70%. How do you know this is real? Well, your budget is secured. It's not identified. It's secured. They have it for this project. Next, legal is cleared. You already cleared all the hurdles. That doesn't mean you've executed it, but you're looking at insurance. You're looking at indemnity. You're looking at all sorts of things. They've checked that box. Next, executioner is bought in. The executioner, the person signing it, knows about the project, likes the project, think this is going to the forefront. He or she will sign it. That means they're bought in. IT cleared. Just get rid of all the IT stuff. Get rid of it because you're on-prem or your cloud or whatever it is. You've cleared all that. In-month target execution date. Every single organization has some sort of standing meeting. They have some sort of event that happens where this is going to be signed. Maybe it's something like, hey, I got to talk to our VPs, and after that, it will be signed. Great. When's that meeting with the VP? Excellent. We can anticipate execution the next day, correct? Oh, we have a board meeting. We're going to present it to the board meeting, and after that board meeting, get done. Great. When's the board meeting? There has to be an exact date. If they don't know the exact date, push. If they don't tell you then... My tendency, push this back down to medium. Exact buying and approval process is known. So you should already know that. But what I'm saying is we need to make sure that they know that this does, in fact, have to go to the VPs. This does, in fact, have to go through this different part of procurement or the CEOs have to see it. We just need to make sure we know that. And then the last one is a verbal is given, that it is going to close. If you take a look and you take at all of these different criteria I, I just suggested, this is how you will know that the deal is real. If you stick to these guidelines and these weights and this criteria, not only will you have a compass for listening – Uh, listening well, but you will also come out of the meeting knowing full well that you won't be drinking water from the skull, and in fact, you'll be on your way to closing a deal and hopefully celebrating with champagne or vodka or beer, whatever you want to do. That wraps up this week's episode. My name is George Hogan, and you've just philosophized your sales. Talk to you soon.